Hello, David. How's it going? It's going fabulous. The sun is coming in and out, and it's raining, and then it's sunny, so it's all, it's all good. So you're in Ketchikan, Alaska. Yeah, I am. I am. Yeah, I am. Yeah. And <laughs> let me tell you, man, it's like they turned the, the, the hose on. There are people from all over the planet. Suddenly, we are in an international city, and they're just, I oh. mean, they're... There are droves of humans like I haven't seen before, man. So Really? But they're all coming off the cruise ships. This is after the great stopping of the world pandemic. That's right. And we're there expecting about 1.5 million people through our town this through summer. Through a town of 10,000? Yeah, 13,000. That's Downtown, incredible. Downtown, about 8,000 people. So it's... It's pretty normal that we're outnumbered, you know, <laughs> just every yeah. day. Is by... that a normal number for cruise ships and all that? Well, it's been slowly creeping up. Right. It's, it, it was uh, in 2019, it was about a million. So we got a half million more people coming wow. this year. So that's mind boggling. It is. And it's like, do you having think it's going to ruin the city or just bring in tons of money so you can improve your roads in the winter? How does that work? It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's got its blessings and it's got its downsides. It's cursed yeah. or whatever too, but it's like yeah. having Woodstock, you know, every day in your little town. <laughs> so I want to get down uh, by the stage, man. And, you know, sure. Hang and with how, Jimmy. Well, you know what? <laughs> I really do. You may not, but I loved the Lumberjack show when I went several times. Oh, yeah. Well, I can hear them from my house cheering all the time. Yay! Right. And I just think of it as like they're cheering for me. No! <laughs> okay. Well, I, uh, of course, have just come back from Australia again. Oh, again? Yeah. Again, and I had a really wonderful time, not just performing, because I took some time to book five days in Alice Springs after my four days of being there for performing. How big a town and, is it? How big is it? Oh, it's 30,000. Oh, yeah. Do you stay hidden in your hotel room so people don't annoy you, or do you wander down the street and bask in the glow of it? <laughs> it's, it's a small town. Oh, there's it's Dave. a small town like Ketchikan. You, you wouldn't think there's 30,000, yeah. but I think that's the surrounding area. So where is Alice Springs? I've not been there. If you were to throw a dart at the bullseye of Australia, it's okay. pretty much in the center. And it's an amazing geological area that used to be a Himalayan size mountain range. Really? When we discussed this episode... I wasn't there, yeah. You weren't yeah. there, yeah. I'll tell you, we, we go into the details. Alice Springs was this Himalayan size mountain range which has eroded down to hills that are about a thousand feet. Wow. Now, is Ayers Rock anywhere near there? And is that what it's called anymore? Ayers Rock is called Uluru. That's Uluru. the original name and okay. current name. It's like okay. Mount McKinley was changed to Denali. Okay. And it's about 300 miles southwest of Alice Springs. And how tall is that? Is it? It's not necessarily tall, about 1,100 feet but it is one of the largest sandstone freestanding rocks in the wow. world, the largest being in Western Australia. But it's made up of Cambrian alluvial fan from the olden days. Sand eroded from mountain ranges hmm. to the south. Just like worn away by the ages. By the billions and billions of years. Yeah, yeah. So there's really such cool paleo stuff there in Australia and... Uh... And who are you talking to? I am talking to Adam Yates, Dr. Adam Yates. He's the curator of the Megafauna Central Museum in Alice Springs, which I never knew was there. And uh, he grew up basically kind of like you. 
you had dinosaurs in cereal. He had dinosaur cards in his cereal when he was a kid. Ah, you know, it's I another think... one. It wow. seems like all you guys had <laughs> these dinosaurs in your breakfast cereals, and that's how you became the great paleontologist you are today. Yeah, sugar and natural history. It's a, it's a natural combo, man. Yeah, so just <laughs> throw a little sugar on that dinosaur, please. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Hey, why don't we listen to this episode yeah. that I didn't get to be there, man? I wish I could have gone. Let's uh, cut to Alice yeah. Springs, Australia. Wow. Where we're going to be talking with Dr. Adam Yates, who is the curator of geology and paleontology at the Megafauna Central Museum of Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. I'm sitting in the collection room of the Megafauna Central Museum, Alice Springs. Is that right, Adam? That is correct. This I is mean, our collection room. This is the heart of the... The heart of the center. There's fossils everywhere. There is fossils everywhere. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, I'm mean, it's like a kid at a Christmas morning is where <laughs> I am. So it's okay if I just introduce you. Like, we'll pretend that I didn't say that yeah. I'm freaking out that right. I'm in this collection yeah, right. room. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. <laughs> okay, my guest today is Adam Yates, Australian megafauna expert and curator of Earth Sciences here at the Megafauna Central Museum, Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. Adam, it's great to have you as my guest on Paleo Nerds. It's an absolute honor. The big question, of course, are you a paleo nerd? Oh, very much so. Have been since I was five years old. What was it? Kellogg's. Kellogg's oh. ran a series of little dinosaur cards in cornflakes packets. And that first card that popped out when I was pouring my cereal or having my cereal poured for me, I was so young, just absolutely entranced me. What, what was, was it? It was an ankylosaurus. You remember? An ankylosaurus, yes. <laughs> I absolutely love these things. And uh, it just snowballed from there. My parents were very supportive. They bought me a book on prehistoric animals, uh, which has long since fallen apart, but I bought a new copy. I found in the second-hand shop of the exact one that I had. And uh, they took me fossil collecting along the River Murray, which is the closest uh, fossil site to Adelaide. That was So you grew next. up in Adelaide? I grew up in Adelaide, yes, in South Australia. Right. And uh, what was your fossil experience as a kid? Are there fossils along the... Because the River Murray is the largest river system yes, in Australia, that's correct? correct. So the last part of it, before it gets to the, the Murray Mouth, cuts through tertiary limestones, or Cenozoic limestone, Miocene, Oligocene, marine limestones that were laid down in a large sort of gulf, big flat area, the Murray Basin, where the sea extended in during periods of very high sea level and laid down all sorts of marine creatures, lots of shells, echinoids, the occasional shark's teeth, which was the, right. the, you know, the holy grail when I was a kid. Right. Took me a long time to find one, but I did eventually. So you're collecting fossils as a kid? Yeah, absolutely. Loved it. That's amazing. So this collection room where we're sitting is in the central desert region. Well, we're in Alice Springs, of Yes, course. that's right. Right in the middle of the continent. Yeah. The central desert region of the vast Australian continent. So can you describe the geologic history of the Red Centre? What What's all around us? We're, we're in these east-west, very rolling hills with... Mm -hmm. Uh, the McDonald Ranges with all yep. these beautiful escarpments. So describe the geology and history okay. so, of this area. So Alice Springs is actually sitting right on the edge of a major geological structure. We call it the Amadeus Basin. So for the hills actually in Alice Springs itself and to the north of us are 
extremely ancient, what we call crystalline basement. These are rocks that have been through everything. They have been cooked and squeezed and intruded uh, and metamorphosed. So, and they're, they're incredibly ancient. They're like oh. Oh, Paleoproterozoic. So getting back, all, they're not quite Archean, but they're getting there. You know, they're very old. One and a half billion, two billion. Oh, right. Yeah. But so, life still existed at one and a half billion it years. It did, it did. But we won't find fossils in the hills to the north because, as I said, those rocks have been cooked. They're the basement. But so Alice Springs is right on the edge to the south of us. So we've got a big, if you've been in Alice Springs, you look south, look to the gap, there's this big ridge. Right. That ridge is the lowest layer of the Armadeus Basin. So okay. that marks the beginning of the Armadeus Basin. They're about 800 million years old. So there's a big gap between these over a billion year old metamorphics to the north Right. And then the 800 million year old sandstone or quartzite that forms this big ridge. We call it the heavy tree ridge. That was laid down probably near the beginning of the Cryogenian or maybe even just before the Cryogenian period. So the Cryogenian is this uh, amazing period in Earth history where our temperature controls, our thermostats went a bit out, went out of whack. Went out, uh, went it was snowball Earth. Snowball Earth, yeah. So it happened a couple of times during the Cryogenian. We had a couple of episodes of where the Earth froze from pole to equator. That whole period is recorded in the Armadeus Basin. So the Armadeus Basin is a big dish-like structure in the Earth's crust. It trends east-west, and it's found to the south of Alice Springs, so pretty much starting at Alice Springs and then heading south, almost to the South Australian border. So that's a big slab of the Northern Territory. But it's been an ancient sea, right? It has. So that started in the Cryogenian, the sea moved in, so we get the heavy tree quartzite that forms the ridge. That's a sand a unit that's probably marginal marine, like the beach. Right. And then, then but, the, but it's vertical, though. So right it's, now, it's now, vertical. now vertical. It was horizontal. Of course. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, you don't get vertical beaches. <laughs> and then the sea moved in proper, and so we get other layers, and it hung around for a long time. So all the way through into the beginning of the Cambrian, through the Cambrian, through the Silurian, the Ordovician Silurian, and then draining away in the Devonian. In the Devonian, we still have, the basin is still present, that it's now freshwater full of lakes and rivers, depositing freshwater sediments with freshwater animal fossils, until finally the basin is squeezed out of existence by tectonic movements that begin pushing up the uh, ranges that become the McDonnell Ranges. Right. And these ranges now are about, uh, what, three, 400 metres tall? Yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. But they used to be huge. They used to be Himalayan size, 30,000 exactly. foot peaks. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and when, when was that? When were they Himalayan size? That would have been early on in the, the beginning throws when the orogeny was at its peak, orogeny being a mountain building event. And that started in the late Devonian, probably ending in before the end of the Carboniferous. And, and they've melted away. <laughs> Not so much melted as being torn down by the, the elements, by the weather, by ero yeah. weathering and erosion. But I've always wanted to see an animation of, yeah. of 300 million years. If you look at the, the old walking with dinosaurs, mm -hmm. in the beginning they had... It was. It kind of showed the land changing and mm -hmm. and mountains rose and and but it was out of focus. I'd love to see an animation of of something like. I, I like really that. wonder if someone has. I mean, that seems an obvious thing to do. Yeah. I wonder if someone's attempted it. 
and whether yeah. it's realistic or yeah. not. So the other thing is that this might happen quite geologically quickly. So we, you know, we look out and see a static environment and yeah. think, you know, things take a very long time to change, and they do, but geological time is vast. So if we were sort of playing a tape, of, you know, like a time lapse from the late Devonian through to the present, the mountain might come up and down in a few frames. Sure. I'm sure. not sure, actually. I'm not enough of a geomorphologist to know well, that. Well, if any of you listeners out there know of any animation that's realistic that shows mountain building or mountain erosion, I would love to see it. Now, I went four-wheel driving uh, a couple days ago, found some Cambrian stromatolites and bird bone fossils from the Oligocene. That is just uh, a handful of what you would find out here in the Red Center. It's absolutely Tell amazing. Tell me what other fossils are out here. Oh, there's just about everything you could care to uh, wish for except for dinosaurs. We right. don't have dinosaurs. The di the, this was uh, an erosive landscape through the Mesozoic. So we don't have a lot of record of... But they would have been here. Oh, they absolutely would have been here. There's, yeah. no, there's no corner of the globe. So when you say erosive, you mean that there... There was no deposition going on to bury their bones. Ah. So, uh, yeah, we've got a, a landscape that was eroding, not depositing. So therefore, no dinosaur, dead dinosaur bones were being incorporated into a sedimentary pile right, from, uh, that from we a, know of. From a river or, yeah. or a yeah. lake or water... Yeah. sedimentation right yeah or one that's lasted they may have been there almost certainly were local lakes and rivers that would right. have deposited bones but unfortunately they've all eroded away but eastern in, in queensland in the east there are sauropods they are yes. yeah so they have some giant uh yeah yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so they were in a different environment they were where we were probably upland at the time they were lowland to ah. even marine so that you've got basically water flowing downhill, carrying the sediment downhill and being deposited in the lowlands. Right. So that's where the sedimentation, where the sediments were accumulating, where the dead dinosaurs were being buried and fossilised. Not the live ones? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe occasionally. They, they do find... Oh, yeah. You know, the, the fossil record's full of all sorts of yeah. things, little well, snapshots of things that were very suddenly entombed. Yeah, uh, I'm going to... Uh link to Dean Lomax's fantastic book, Locked in Time, and he was right, yeah. a previous guest on our show. So what's, run the gamut of what fossils you'd find within a couple hundred kilometer radius of Alice Springs. All right, okay. So starting with the oldest, we have cryogenian-aged stromatolites. So yeah, Older than what I found? Older than, older than the Cambrian ones that you found. So these are cryogenian, and indeed if you slice open those stromatolites and some of the cherts that you find around them in a, in a unit called the Bitter Springs Formation, uh, and you grind them down to thin sections and look around the microscopes, you can find fossil single-celled organisms, prokaryotes, blue-green really? algae, stuff really? like that. Yeah, it's similar to what you can do in even older rocks in Canada, right. the gun, the famous Gunflint Chert. Right, you can which do are supposedly the oldest evidence of life on on the planet. I think there is. I think they've been eclipsed. They are. They aren't the oldest. They're old, but they're not the well, oldest. Well, at one time they were. Yeah, <laughs> that's always the way. Was it Western Australia eclipsed it? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in fact, they're talking about making it a World Heritage Site now, oh, right. where you've got, I think, the the definite oldest stromatolites, and they're, they're archaea. I'm talking yeah. about the, the single cells. Yes, yes, that's correct. Single cells can build stromatolites. Oh, I thought stromatolites were a community. Well, they're a community, but they're a community of single-celled organisms, prokaryotes. So they're, they're really basal. They're, they're, they're basically giant bacterial colonies. 
Of course, of course. Well, wait, maybe you might give me a refresher here. Life began on planet Earth 3.8 billion years ago? What's, I what's believe the, so. Something yeah. like that. Yes. But it would have been free-floating, single-cell prokaryotes Correct. in the oceans. Yes. And they would not have formed communities. They wouldn't be hanging out with each no. other. No. They would be dividing. But they didn't stay like that for very long. So it wasn't too long before they started doing things like clumping together. They're not necessarily forming tissues and multicellular organisms, right, right. but they are banding together. And when is the first evidence of that? Well, I think pretty much when the first stromatolites show up. Okay. Yeah, because oh, those stromatolites realize... are just basically elaborate algal mats or right. bacterial mats. shouldn't call them oh, algal. Oh, I yeah. thought that... Uh, oh, I, this is great. I am <laughs> completely re-educated on uh, stromatolites. Fantastic. All right, and so we have it. We go as far back as stromatolites. Keep yeah, going. So, Keep yeah, going okay. up the ladder. Okay, we climb up the ladder. Uh, we go through a long period, then we get snowball earth. So we have our glacial deposits, which don't really have any fossils in them, but they're amazing because they tell us about how. And at the time, I believe Alice Springs was fairly near the equator, uh, and so, but here we've got glacial deposits. So you have terrains, glacial terrains. and Glacial terrains. And erratics. And erratics, that's right. Drop wow. stones, all that sort of stuff. Now, erratics um, are boulders that would be locked in ice, floating over the ocean, yep. and as the ice melts, they just literally drop to the bottom, bottom. Exactly. in a random order. Yep, yep, that's, that's right. crazy. Yeah. Imagine, yeah. imagine, oh, oh, yeah. oh, I love it. So love we've it. got that. Then... Snowball Earth goes away, and during that time, something miraculous has happened, where the now eukaryotic single-celled organisms have found a way to actually... Which are cells with a nucleus. nucleus. That's correct, yep. yep. And other organelles, mitochondria and stuff like that. So they're, they're more complex. They're larger and more complex. But they were um, after the Snowball Earth went away, they became yet even more complex because they banded together, but instead of forming loose colonies, they were forming integrated multicellular organisms. And we now call, we're now into the famous Ediacaran period. We've left the Cryogenian, we're now in the Ediacaran. Which is 600 or I 650 to 550, something like that? I think, it's a, I think it comes a bit younger than 550. I think it comes to 530. Or, right. I'm not sure. Well, I, the Cambrian, you, you can look up the numbers. The Cambrian yeah. Begins at 5:30 or 5:35, yeah. but about who's counting millions of years? Exactly. And the uh, this is why we use names instead of numbers. Yeah, they're just so much yeah. easier to remember. And the great uh, Ediacaran fossils are found south of here in the Flinders Ranges in in South Australia. Australia. But they're also found much closer to my home, Alice Springs. Right. Uh, in fact, they can be found practically within the municipal borders of Alice Springs. Really? Here? Yes, right here. Right. Um, so do we have Ediacaran rocks which are part of the, the, this vast sequence of the Amadeus Basin. We call it the Arumbara Formation, and it has Ediacaran fossils in it. All right, after this, we're getting in your car. And, oh, wait, you walked here. <laughs> I walked here, yes. <laughs> you, you live a couple of blocks away. Okay, so Ediacaran and then Cambrian. I've stepped, yeah. I stepped on some, some Cambrian stromatolites. But we've got other Cambrian animals as well. We have a number of the little mollusk shells. There is a unit of limestone that you can dissolve in acetic acid and out will pop all the little tiny, small shelly fossils. I don't know if you've heard of the SSF, but it's one of these phenomena of the early Cambrian. So it's like when animals were just starting to biomineralize, that is make shells, and they often made little tiny ones. And so these become phosphatic or phosphatized. And when you dissolve the limestone away, 
the phosphate is more resistant and so it just rains out of the dissolving block, forms a sludge at the bottom of your acid Filled pack. with these little shells. Filled with these little shells. You just sieve it, pick it under a microscope, and you get this wonderful array of small shelly fossils. Wow. And uh, what were the creatures in them? Well, that's the, that's been a big... Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're working on it. Yeah. It, it. Actually, huge strides have been made. Right. We now know that most of these small shellies are not so much little shells for little tiny snails and things, but they're actually what we call sclerites. That is, like a hard part that would cover a larger animal, so they'd have lots and like, lots of like these. Like scoots. Kind like of. scoots, exactly right. like scoots. So little spines and plates right. that were covering... Slug, mostly slug-like animals. Right. And so we've now, fortunately, in, in certain Lagerstaten, found nice articulated what we call sclerotomes of these animals. So we now know what these small shells are. On the, based on the pattern of these shells, you can see the yeah, soft-bodied slug? Some, yeah, well, sometimes... that wouldn't be preserved. Well, sometimes it can be preserved. Oh, right. You know, in some of these Cambrian black shales, like the Burgess shale... Yeah. where you do famously get soft tissues preserved. Yeah. And there are a number of these, uh, and there are some younger ones. There's this wonderful one in uh, Herefordshire uh, in England where rather than a black shale, it's actually a volcanic chert. Really? And it's basically frozen these things in chert. Instead of, but it's, it's the same sort of principle that you get the, like insects in amber. Right. So you've got these tiny little soft-bodied animals. In situ, kind In of. situ, completely 3D, Inside this chert. Now, the problem is the chert is not see-through like amber. Yeah. So what you have to do is actually serially grind it away, one micron at a time, take a photo, and then grind a little bit more, take a photo, and then, you know, using modern well, software... Well, that's how Walcott... Walcott did it, but he used how, wax. But, yeah, you know, we, we use computers yeah. uh, and scanners and things like that. Uh, Walcott was part of the Burgess Shale yes, discoveries. Yeah, but there were other units where they were doing this serial grinding, and in the past what they would do is actually make wax models. So each slice they would do an outline, and then you could make cut that out But they destroy the actual... They destroy the actual fossil, yeah, yes. Yeah. And that, that's still the case with this one, but you get these beautiful virtual silicon 3D models right. of soft, squishy creatures from the Paleozoic with... There's sclerites on it. So we can now understand that some of these were early mollusks, some of them were early relatives of brachiopods, uh, some of them were a bit weirder, a bit more out sure, there. Sure. You know, uh, Stephen J. Gould. Yeah. <laughs> well, we now know what hallucigenia yeah. is. It's yeah, been harmed. Yeah, right, it's a worm. worm. Uh, well, it's a velvet worm. It's yeah. actually related to the arthropods, so a thing we call a lobopod. I was able to go to Goss's Bluff, which right. is yes. a 142-million-year-old impact crater. Mm -hmm. And as I was standing there, I, I just assumed that all the material had been vaporized or, or reconstituted. And then you're telling me what, <laughs> yesterday that there are freshwater what, Devonian fish, fish fossils before the impact that still the sediment remained intact. Uh, intact enough to preserve the fossils. So certainly the ones that were at the surface when this meteorite impacted... A one kilometre yeah. in diameter. Yeah. Would have been a bad day for the dinosaurs. This, this would be the... Uh, Jurassic. Early, oh, the Jurassic. He hit, hit about the time of the late Jurassic, I right. believe. Like, but anyway, so there were dinosaurs there. They would have been vaporised. Any fossils that were directly on the surface certainly would have been melted. 
and right. blasted and vaporized. But there's many layers of rock beneath that impact. So the effects of the impact continue on down, but they, they're not infinite. They don't go all the way down sure. to the Earth's core. So as you go deeper and deeper... It's less and less. It's less and less. And what's happened... And there since, was 5,000 feet of sediment above where the, where the Bluff is now. now. Exactly. So what we're looking at is almost like an undercrater, right. not the actual crater. So we're looking at a ring of disturbed and impacted rocks right. that were, at the time, far right. below the impact surface. And they have fossils in them. And so we have Devonian fish. Let's move a little bit Okay, further, right, further along. So, yep, we've skipped over the uh, Ordovician. So the Ordovician is actually rich, one of the oh, most really? richly fossiliferous here. Sorry, so, for, sorry Mr. Ordovician. <laughs> yeah, so there we've got trilobites, including Australia's biggest trilobite. Giant, straight-shelled nautiloids and some of the earliest bony f uh, fish with bone. I shouldn't say bony fish. Bony fish means a particular group of fish that have jaws. These ones didn't have jaws. These so were the agnathians. Jaws. They were agnathians, but they had bony armour around the outside. Right. So there are, we now know that there were vertebrates back in the Cambrian. We found Cambrian vertebrates, but they are soft and squishy. Sure. Our Ordovician ones are still, they're actually depositing bone, but not as an internal skeleton, actually as an external skeleton. Like a, a, a with the yeah, yeah, the derm, the dermal plates. Exactly, that's right. Yeah. So uh, when they were first discovered, they were actually the oldest vertebrates known on the planet. Uh, we gave them a name. We call them Arundaspis after the Aranda people who oh, right. live here. But they've since been eclipsed. We had the oldest vertebrates. Now someone else does. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so now, then you get the Devonian freshwater right. fish moving up. We actually enter the big geological black hole, as it were, because when, when basically Central Australia became an erosive, non-depositional landscape and we don't get fossils until much, much later. So there's a gap from when to when? Basically from the Devonian through to the Oligocene. So we've got all of that time missing. That's a lot of emptiness. It is a lot of emptiness, yeah. And there's no sections, no nothing. Huh. Look, there might be. Yeah, there might be some buried. You were talking about how so we haven't maybe found the bottom of some of the deposits, like even the Fink River Valley might. Right. So it may go down to the Mesozoic. In fact, some of these other basins around here may have Mesozoic layers, but they're buried deep. Sure. And we haven't act been able to access them. Right, so right. we haven't found any fossils right. in them yet. Now, I've had a walk around this museum, Megafauna Central. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful, well-curated space. And most of the fossils here come from the Alcuta fossil beds, which is a well-preserved Miocene fossil treasure trove. Where is it and what's its significance? Okay, it's northeast of Alice Springs, not far. It's about two and a half hours drive by car, but if you go in a straight line, it's less than 200 kilometres away. It's in a little basin that's developed between those ancient crystalline basement hills that I was talking about that go to the north of Alice Springs. It preserves an amazing bed, just a single horizon. It's less than a, a metre thick. When you say single horizon, you mean uh, a few hundred years? Or do you mean... Well, it's hard to put some time frame on it, but or what I mean... Do you mean a day? I, I, <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> in stratigraphic height, in actual just... Thickness, you've got piles and piles of basically freshwater sediments, mostly riverbank or river deposits, fluviatile deposits, overbanks and channel deposits, stacked on top of each other, mostly barren. But then 
there's this one magic layer. As I said, it's very thin, much less than a metre thick, but it is so densely packed with bones, and it co- it's, these, this bone-bearing area covers an area of about two football fields. It is literally bone packed on bone packed on bone, all sort of meshed together in some places, so they're so tight that it actually makes excavation difficult. So it's like a giant game of pickup sticks because you've got all these bones meshed together. You might start uncovering one bone, but then you've got another bone on top. So you start excavating that bone, and then you find another bone on top of that. And eventually you end up with this big interwebbed pile. Then you have to choose, okay, that bone comes out first, then that one, then that one, and then finally you get the one that you originally started on. It's that that dense. And what are you finding there? Well, we are finding the remains of at least 33 different species of bird, reptile, and mammal, uh, marsupial. All the mammals are marsupials here, this site. And they are among the oldest Australian mammalian megafauna. So it's a fauna that is dominated by big animals, animals that are over 50 kilograms in weight as adults. And that's the first time we find that. We've got, obviously, older deposits going back into the older Miocene and Oligocene and even in one site in Queensland, Eocene. And they're all full of little mammals. And there are a couple of biggish mammals that you can find in older rocks. But Alcuta records the oldest mammalian megafauna in Australia. There are obviously older known mammal fossils and mammal assemblages, but they are mostly dominated by small mammals and other small animals, mostly below 50 kilograms in adult body mass. Alcuta is the first time we have a habitat that was dominated by animals that were growing bigger than 50 kilograms in weight as adults. So it's the first site that represents these large animals. Yes. But there were large animals throughout Australia, not just in this locale. Exactly. So yeah, there were big animals throughout Australia, but Australia during the late Miocene Epoch was one that was largely erosive in most places and we weren't getting depositions. So late Miocene sites, they're very rare, but we've got so many that we can, you know... Well, your museum shows a beautiful diprotodon, which came from there, and then the giant bird, the... Dromornis. Dromornis, right? Mm -hmm. This thing is huge. Yes, it is quite probably the largest bird that ever lived anywhere on the planet. Really? Uh, uh, We call it Dromornis sturtoni. There are other species of Dromornis that go back further in time, but they're all a little bit smaller. Sturtoni was the largest of all the Dromornis. And, yeah, it reached... A vertical height of three metres quite quite easily. And the largest Dromornis males, we know they were males, uh, were in the vicinity of six, maybe 700 kilograms in weight. Wow. Yeah, very big. That's heavy. Only the Madagascan elephant bird is a rival. Oh, really? Yeah. They were fairly recent, weren't they? They were very recent, yeah. Weren't they eradicated by human bringing rats to their island? Yeah, and it probably wasn't rats. Rats probably wouldn't be able to get through their um, those eggshells. Oh, it was probably right. actually human hunting. Sure. Just good sure. old human hunting. So we have diprotodons, which are like giant wombats. Yeah. Right? The Dromornus. Dromornus? Dromornus. D. D-R-O. Yeah. Drom. The Dromornis, mm-hmm. which are the giant birds. Yes. Then there was a marsupial tapir, which which Wikipedia says it possibly had a trunk. Well, we discussed this yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Though the, um, the old idea was that 
it's it's got a lot of the classic trunk-like features. So it's got this really enlarged nasal opening. The nasal bones themselves are retracted backwards so that they're just little triangular points that sit actually sort of almost jutting out of the forehead and you've got this really elongated snout with this massive nasal opening and then huge infraorbital canals that open underneath the eye sockets. These are canals for carrying nerves and blood vessels to feed really large... Large chunk of meat. Yeah, basically the, a, a very sensitive... Yeah. nasal apparatus and so these are classic features that you see in elephants and tapirs yeah and so the idea is that this might be a marsupial tapir not everyone accepts this so there is this alternative hypothesis that just has palakestes with a short but really really large Bump. fat nose yeah fat nose <laughs> and honestly i don't know what it was doing with such a big nose so i still sit in the um he had a trunk camp. Yeah. But or a small I mean, one, like a tapir. Yeah, like a tapir, but we don't actually know either way. And you found some awesome predators as well. Indeed. Yeah, so we've got some small mammalian predators. We've got uh, a leopard-sized marsupial lion. These are not it's, actually related to it's cats. It's not a thylacolio, but something... it's, it's, a, it's an early relative of thylacolio. This is a wackalio. Um, okay, and so, we're, but we're talking 8 million years ago, this yes. site has been dated. Yes. Right. Uh, well, that's our estimate. We actually haven't got an absolute date because we've got no volcanic sediment to right. give a radiometric date to. There's no other sediments above or below that we can date. So we, we were sort of forced to rely on the general evolutionary stage of most of these things. And they seem to slot between middle Miocene animals and later Pliocene animals. So that's why we're very sure that it sits in the uh, late Miocene epoch. Right. At about roughly 8 million, give or take a couple million right. either side. So the marsupial lion, and then there is the thylacine, which is like mm -hmm. the Tasmanian tiger. Exactly. It's, a, it's an earlier relative of it that had a bigger, chunkier skull and jaws so it had it had larger broader teeth it's probably able to consume a bit more well, of the carcass than a modern tasmanian tiger could which seems to have been hyper specialized for eating soft tissue so we, it wasn't consuming an entire carcass what a bigger dog for bigger prey yeah yeah, yeah. possibly but they, neither of these two things were the ultimate predator at the site. The right. apex predator <laughs> is a crocodile and a really big one, about the length of a modern saltwater crocodile, which is not small at all. Right, seven metres? Yeah, uh, I think seven metres is probably the absolute maximum, but right. they definitely they positively recorded it being up to six metres and a little bit over six metres. So, yeah, possibly that a, a record breaker at seven metres might exist. But, yeah, that's not small. And, and that is and here you know, in Alakuta. Uh, they were, they were here, yeah, they were crocodiles of saltwater crocodile size right here. But unlike modern saltwater crocodiles, the crocodiles at Alcuda, they go by the name of Baru, that's the genus name, were much more robust, much more heavily built. So they've got bigger muscle attachment sites on their limb bones. Their limb bone shafts are just generally thicker for an equivalent size saltwater crocodile. And the, uh, uh, spines on top of the vertebrae where you have the uh, muscles, uh, the neck muscles that hold the head up, they're huge. They're right. really, really tall, which indicates they had massive muscles uh, powering this really deep-skulled head. So it wasn't as hydrodynamic, wasn't as sleek 
as some of the other crocodiles because it had gone in for just having these really deep, massive jaws. And they're freshwater, right? They were freshwater, yes. A long and way what from would sea. be the biggest specimen you have? The biggest specimen we have has a skull length of 50 centimetres. Head size in crocodiles correlates pretty nicely. So how nicely. many metres would that individual? That, would, that individual would probably be a four and a half metre individual. Right. So not a seven metre one, but we've got a sample size of seven compared oh. to uh, the sample size of modern saltwater crocodiles right. of being many hundreds collected over a, a great number of years. So we've got a chance to find those super big ones. So with 4.5 metres, by the way, you would not get into a pool with a 4.5-metre no. <laughs> saltwater crocodile. So why are these crocs thicker? Are, are they they're brutes, basically? Yeah, yeah. They're not streamlined and thin. Are they brutes because they're taking down... Big animals. Big animals. That's right, yeah. I think they're specialising on large prey, more so than a modern crocodile. So uh, modern saltwater crocodiles are quite capable of taking big animals. Well, the Nile crocs and the ones in Africa, they're taking down wildebeests. They are, but they're not subsisting on them. They're mostly Ah. eating fish and smaller things. Those are opportunistic during the migrations. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Whereas I think that Baru is just so massive, so overbuilt and overdesigned. It had to be basically taking down big prey regularly as its staple diet. Right. When I was speaking to you yesterday, you said that one of these species has thousands and thousands of bones. And what was, was it the bird or was it the duck? Oh, no, that's overall at Alcuda because I, I mentioned how incredibly dense the bone bed right. is and how it covers an area of approximately two football fields. So we can do a back-of-the-envelope calculation of how many bones are in the site, which is way, way up. You know, it's in the tens of thousands, which it roughly uh, equates to at least 3,000 individual animals buried at the site. And what is the dominant animal at that site. Okay, the commonest animal at the site is actually a small diprotodon relative. It was much smaller than the big diprotodon. It was about the size of a sheep. It's a thing called Colopsis. It's a, it's a bit vanilla, really, when in terms of uh, things. So you won't see it in lots of popular books about prehistoric animals of Australia. You always get the big diprotodon and maybe the weird Eurizygoma and all these other... What's inter- a, wait, wait, a what? As Eurizygoma. Who's another, that? He's a diprotodon relative that had bizarre cheek flanges, bony oh, cheek okay. flanges that stuck out sideways from its head. Looks absolutely freaky weird. Uh, so, of course, it gets into the books. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's weird looking. It's weird looking. But this little diprotodon... Diprotodon tid, actually, yes. This little diprotodon tid, it was existent with the large ones? It was with larger ones. The actual diprotodon... Two separate species. Yeah, or two two different genera within the family, yeah. So diprotodon, the really big giant one, that actually doesn't come from Alcuda itself. Oh, That comes from... uh, That skeleton that you see on display is a cast from uh, a site in South Australia. Okay. So the diprotodontids is this one species that you found at Alcuda. Diprotodontids are the family that includes diprotodon... And the little guy at Alcuda. And the big guy. is plural. I'm making yeah, that yeah. mistake. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a family. Right. Like, like hominid sure. includes Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, yeah. Australopithecus, all yeah. these different species in, sometimes in different genera. So the Diprotodontidae is the formal name for it, is a family. It includes the biggest marsupial that ever lived, Diprotodon, which lived in the Pleistocene. But if we go back to the late Miocene, 
it includes a bunch of lesser-known species, including Colopsis, which is staggeringly abundant at Alcuda. It didn't have any horns or any, you know, massive size or giant claws or spikes growing out of it. So it, it, it was just a small, basic browsing mammal. Right. And they were common. Super common. As common as sheep are today. Right. And in this locality, how big is, how big is this dried-up lake bed? Um, the it, fossil site. I mean, the you've excavated site, its, its yeah. limits, correct? Uh, roughly. We actually haven't fully excavated the whole site. We've sort of dropped pits yeah. here and there. My predecessor actually got a, a, an augering machine out there to drill shallow holes to try and fully map out the, the full boundary of the site. Unfortunately, the machine broke down after the fifth <laughs> hole, and we haven't got one back since. But we pretty much know that it doesn't go... We've, we've sort of got... A west, the western limit is uh, an erosional limit, so it's cut off by erosion along its western edge. Its eastern edge, we're not sure because it disappears under a rise. And what was the great die-off? I, I gave you my yeah. hypothesis yesterday. So the, the, the favoured hypothesis that it, we've been working under for a long time was that it was drought. A severe drought. And all these animals came to drink at this water hole, oh, which is yeah. dried up. Dried up, and their carcasses accumulated around right. a dried up water hole. However, to put that amount of water stress on an environment to dry it out, you have to have a fairly prolonged drought. Right. Now, droughts don't happen quickly. They basically, an absence of rain over an extended period. Right. During those stressful times, animals like marsupials and birds will basically stop reproducing right because it's a lot of energy and resources put into reproducing if you've bit short you wait till the good times again sure. before you start up so we have now got clear evidence that both the mammals the marsupials and the giant birds were actively breeding at the time of their demise right we've got medullary bone inside the... Um, Which is bone that produces calcium for eggs. For eggs. Female birds lay down this bone tissue just before laying their eggs, in, in sort of in the, the lead-up to breeding yep. season. And we found pretty much all of the female Dromornis, these giant birds, were all chock full of medullary bone. Okay, so if it's not a couple of weeks of a mud pool drying up and them all keeling over because of thirst, what is it, Adam? That's a good question. I'm working What do you on think? No, I'm thinking the opposite of drought, flood, like a super flood. And I was keyed into this idea. Um, there was recently some very nasty floods in Queensland. And indeed, someone actually writing a paper about dead dinosaurs in Western North America, right. uh, actually a tyrannosaur bone bed, published some photos of the aftermath of these floods in Queensland. And it had great piles of dead cattle just pushed up against a natural yeah. barrier. No, I've, or, seen, I've seen that, but, yeah. but with those cattle, were there birds and were there lizards and were there dogs and were there cats? See, that's where yeah. that theory might <laughs> be a bit thin. Well, it might be. We're working on it. And that's why I, I mean, obviously, there's no articulation with the skeletons. No, they, they was, it was like an original event that killed them. The carcasses then lay open for long enough for the things to rot uh, and for the muscles and tissues that were holding the bones in position to decay away right, right. so that when they were buried by another flood which was possibly a bit more gentle they were moved enough that we lost association that because sure. they were so dense there were piles of bodies on top of other bodies right. and they all jumbled together right. that said 
we do sometimes find association every now and then. But it's very rare. It is very rare. Yesterday, you showed me a fossil with crocodile teeth marks, predation. What is the story with that and what was it? Okay, so um, that was a lower jaw of one of the smaller diprotodontids from Alcuta. Does he have a name? That, that I think, was a, if I think back, that was a juvenile Pyramios. Pyramios. Pyramios, which is one of the less common species at Alcuta. Basically, it's a, it's a relative of diprotodon itself, and you shrank it down to, say, cow size instead of big rhino hippo right, size. Right, And what is the evidence that you see in this right. jaw? So that jaw, unlike nearly all the uh, other jaw bones that we've got from Alcuta, is fractured in a way that looks like a green stick fracture, like the fracture was made when the jaw was fresh, when the bone was fresh, still had its collagen in it, so it had spring, and so it's got this spiral fracture, a big elongate oblique split. So he was alive, basically. If not recently dead, and the crocodile decided to have a feed. Um, there's teeth marks. <laughs> there's teeth marks, that's right. Yeah, so you've got some, some impact little punctures around where the jaw has split in half. Well, I took a picture of that. We'll have it on the, the oh, website. Excellent. Yeah. Any other evidence of predation? Actually, relatively little. Now, this is one of the interesting things, because if, as I am starting to think might be the explanation, the main killing mechanism for these carcasses or this, all this big pile of dead bodies was flood, floods generally don't kill crocodiles, but there's crocodiles mixed in with it. Ah. Now, my hypothesis to explain that is that big piles of dead bodies are magnets to crocodiles. And so the crocodiles were coming in for a big feed. But they were probably overwhelmed by the simple sheer volume of, uh, of carcasses that uh, literally they couldn't mark every single carcass. They just fed on the f a few around the edges and the top. And we're lucky enough that that jawbone is one of the ones that shows evidence of feeding, whereas most of them don't. But what killed the crocodiles that we actually find in the deposit well, I think they were not victims of the flood, but quite possibly victims of each other. Crocodiles can get aggressive what? with each other. Interesting. Yeah, but they wouldn't eradicate themselves into nothing. Well, they didn't eradicate themselves into nothing, but they had fights. Oh, okay. And so some of them may have killed each other. How many crocodiles have you found at Alcuda? Seven. So seven. seven is a minimum number of individuals to account for right. all the bones that we've got. Right. And what's the predator-prey ratio at Alcuda? Well, I think the minimum number of individuals for Colopsis is probably getting close to 200 now. So seven crocodiles, 200 Colopsis, and about 30 Dromornus birds. And The birds were vegetarian. They were... Yes, that's correct. Yeah, so you can put them into the prey pile. Right. Although possibly a big three-metre-tall, 700-kilo Dromornus is probably outside the range of even a big bar room. But then again... You know, they have a weak point. They have their legs. Yeah. Uh, and if it was stupid enough to wander into the shallow water, if a crocodile struck at its legs, it could probably topple a bird, yeah. even, you know, a very large bird. Yeah. 
Do you think the Alcuda site represents the predator-prey ratio, or is it skewed? Because I, I would say it's skewed. Because it yeah. was a death event, and yes. it's not going yeah. to be a representation of the ecosystem. Yes, I think that's definitely what's going on. Another thing that's going on is it's definitely skewed towards the big things. So we find lots and lots of big animals that probably drowned, were unable to escape. Even if it wasn't a flood, they'd seem to have been unable to escape whatever the killing mechanism was. Any other strange hypotheses besides heat? Water hole poisoning. Ah, well, hydrogen toxic... sulfide. The old... Well, yeah, I'm not sure if hydrogen sulfide. I was thinking more along the lines of toxic algal bloom. Basically, the water hole, you know, being poisoned and these animals coming in to drink, basically being poisoned to death. That sounds very probable. Is there any evidence on a, on a uh, microscopic level? Of, of no, not, not that algae? I can find. I think, unfortunately, if it was so toxic that it killed the animals outright, it won't leave a trace. This is the enigma of paleopathology. If, it were, if the animal was sick enough or for long enough to leave a mark on its skeleton, it wasn't instantly fatal. It had to live with it long enough for the pathology to be recorded in the skeleton. Wow. Well, Alcuda, it's still ongoing, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, we go out there. We're going out there a little less often than we used to. So back in the 80s and early 90s, there was basically a dig every single year, but that's slowed down to sort of once, somewhat erratically, but once every two years. And now, post-COVID, we're basically going once every three years. Now. Right, right. Plus, you got to get funding. Exactly. Always money and time. Now, yesterday in this collections department, you showed me a... Well, I don't, can I say it? You showed me a turtle? I did, yeah. yes. You can talk about it? I can talk about it, yes. It hasn't been about. described yet. Uh, it has been given oh. a name. Okay, so what I showed to you was the skull of a horned turtle, right. a myelania, which is this amazing group of turtles that uh, lived... In Australia, and in fact, if you go back far enough in the fossil record, you can find them in South America. So they were around in South America in the Eocene. So it seems that they were probably crossing the southern land bridge between South America and Australia across Antarctica. Uh, but they died off in South America by the end of the Eocene, whereas in Australia they survived on. So the one I showed you was Miocene, but they actually made it into the Pleistocene. But these spikes are on the, like it's on its cheeks, right? Or the back of its they're ear? On the back of its head, sort oh. of like on the back corner. So they're growing out like a pair of cow's horns. Right. And, but the Miocene <laughs> one that we have here in the Northern Territory has the biggest horns of all. I showed you that horn. It was huge. Yeah. It was like, what, 30 yeah. centimetres long? Yeah. And how big would this turtle have been? It Several hundred kilograms? Yes, yes. Bigger yes. than a green turtle? Um, big, as big as a yeah. leatherback? No, not that, not big. that big. Not not that big. But sort of getting up there, it's sort of like that a slightly head is massive. It's the head, massive. Is, the head is a very large head. It's, it certainly couldn't pull it back into its shell. Right. In fact, it was an oversized for its body. So its body wasn't necessarily quite as big as you might imagine from the size of the skull. Right. Because it had this oversized head. It was probably about the size of, say, a Galapagos giant tortoise. Right. And it was a land. It was a land tortoise. A At land least tortoise. that's what we think. Someone has proposed that they were aquatic. But most people are saying that they, they, they seem to have stumpy, tortoise-like right. feet and short, blunt hooves. Are there fossilised shells? Bits of shell. Strangely enough, for all of its cranial ornamentation, its shells are remarkably thin. <laughs> really, really thin. So we only find bits of them rather than a whole shell. This is fascinating. 
we could go on forever. Is there anything we didn't cover today that you wanted to tell our listeners about maybe why Alcuda is significant? Well, Alcuda is very significant. Not only is it like fantastically rich, full of fossils. I'm sitting in this collection room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we've got 10,000 registered specimens and probably just as many to come. Not only that, it's unique. As I said, late Miocene deposits in Australia are very few and far between, and none of them come even close to Alcuda in richness of species, number of species or number of specimens. Now, you might say, well, so what? Late Miocene is just one epoch amongst a whole grand scheme of geological time. Late Miocene is an important time for Australia because it's when our climate began to change. We were, in the past, a fairly wet continent. Uh, in fact, if you go back, say, for instance, 45 million years into the Eocene, you've got remains around Lake Eyre of a... Which day, is a big, big, a big, 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 big salt lake in the middle of uh, South Australia. Right. Very, very arid. You couldn't find a more desolate, arid place if you tried. But there, preserved in the muds uh, around Lake Eyre, you can find remains of a forest, a rainforest, that had plants in it that you now find in the Dane Tree. Which so, is the Dane Tree Tropical Rainforest yeah, up yeah. by Cairns. That's in, right, yeah. In uh, northern Queensland. Yeah, absolutely synonymous with the Rainforest, wet, with yeah. the wet tropics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we have... Would that have been Australia-wide? Pretty from, much. From Perth to Sydney, from yeah, there probably, Darwin to... There's some argument about exactly how big the rainforest coverage was, but certainly in the Eocene, it was pretty much continental. There probably were some patches. Of in, course, there's always yeah, bare, little, bare patches. There's little patches here. They're probably up on high ridges and things yeah, like that, yeah. exposed ridges. And maybe the area that's now the Pilbara, like that part of northwestern Australia. Australia. Yeah, that is very hot it's and dry now. where the great now. iron mines are, the great iron yes, ore of yeah. Australia comes from. That's probably one of the driest bits of Australia and that may have even not had rainforest back then. And what caused this aridification? Well, it's pretty much a response to what was happening globally. During the entire Cenozoic era, from the after the death of the dinosaurs leading up to the present, the Earth's climate had been cooling, basically heading towards the Pleistocene. But we had the Eocene, yeah, there was Eocene, a, there, the Petum. Yeah, that's right. We had that maximum, that thermal maximum. Thermal maximum. Yeah. But then after that, it has been up and down in a sawtooth fashion, not absolutely gradual, but it has been heading... The global a, temperatures. Global temperatures have been heading in a downwards trend. Right. As we get towards the Pleistocene ice ages. Right. That affected the northern hemisphere, at least in terms of ice, that's where the glaciers and ice caps were. We didn't have any glaciers here in Australia, but the effect of that ice age was still quite apparent. Because when you oh, get... Oh, did it lock up the water and moisture? That's one of the things it did, but probably the main effect that it did is it cooled global sea temperatures. And when sea ah. temperatures drop, evaporation from the sea declines. And when evaporation... Moisture overall yeah. on the planet. <clears throat> yeah, so rainfall decreases. And for a flat continent like Australia, we don't have much in the way. We don't have an equivalent of the Rockies. Like, you know... You don't have mountains to stop those weather systems. Disastrous for an extremely flat continent right. like Australia. So our rainfall declined dramatically. Starting Yeah, when? and starting in the late Miocene. And in the late Miocene is when it really starts to bite. The beginnings of the arid zone. 
So that's what Alcuda records. The start uh, of this. The start of this. And, and the animal's response to it, interestingly enough, seems to have been to grow big, to become right. a megafauna. Right. Because it seems that the open habitats that it was promoting promoted large animals oh. and possibly also a decline in the quality of the plant food, the browse, becoming more sclerophyll, you know, tougher, harder vegetation that took a lot more guts to digest. So you had to have a bigger set of guts, which right. needed a bigger body. Right. Uh, and then also, the, you know, behaviours like herding, starting to move together in groups instead of being little things dispersed throughout a forest. Is there evidence of herding in diprotodontids? There is in diprotodon. So at a different site, not Alcuta, called Lake Calabona, which is now a dry salt lake in central South Australia, we have evidence that they were travelling at least in groups. So we've got like trackways. Oh, you have and, trackways. And oh. parallel, multiple parallel oh. trackways of animals moving together in groups. And, and basically large numbers of them buried together indicate they probably were herding. Right. And in fact, with Colopsis at Alcuda, we can't actually know the social structure, but the sheer volume and number of animals buried at this one site kind of suggests to me that, yeah, they were maybe not herding. Herding might not be the right word. But, but in family units. But in units, yes. Mobs, so, as a, the word we like to use for Australian yeah. kangaroos. So I think of uh, mobs of Colopsis. Ray usually asks this question. Ray, I miss you. I wish you were here, but... I'll ask it instead, and of course it won't have the panache. Adam, if you could go back in time to any epoch or period, any era, where would you go and what would you like to see? That's a, there's too much. There's so much I want to see. Look, for, for a lot of my professional life, I would have said I really, really want to see dinosaurs. Alive, non-avian dinosaurs. But where exactly? Come on, the end of the Cretaceous, the Jurassic. Uh, I would probably choose something like the Morrison. Yeah, right. I would love to see a Patasaurus and Diplodocus and Allosaurus as living creatures. But that said, since moving back to Australia, starting at Alcuda and working at Alcuda, I would love to see some of these things alive. And I think actually maybe the Miocene of Australia would be safer than the than the Mesozoic. You know, if you oh, were going right. to go back in time, you know, you'd be in danger in the Morrison. Yeah, but those thylacines <laughs> and, and marsupial lions, they were something to be... Yeah, yeah, but I feel that that's something that a human could potentially guard themselves against, you right. know. I, I don't think there's anything you could do if an allosaur got interested in you. No, no, you could <laughs> No, a, a big stick with fire would not uh, yeah. deter it. Which leads me to one question... There were humans during Diprotodon. Yes, exactly. Uh, Diprotodon, the last of the Diprotodontids, overlaps in time with the first Australian humans. That, that much we know. We there know are kill sites. There is a kill site. There is a definite kill site in the Flinders Ranges of South Australia where some people had actually carted a young Diprotodon halfway up an extremely steep hill, one, in fact, so steep you could almost call it a cliff face, to get to a cave where they cooked and consumed a wow. young diprotodon. Wow. That's amazing. So uh, humans did see what you, where you would like to go. Yeah. 
They they saw that they, they saw the, the the Pleistocene version of what started at Alcuda. Wow. And now my big question, which is not always so big. Most people visit a museum once a year or learn about fossils and paleontology in year 11 or mm -hmm. through the BBC documentaries or through the fantasy of Jurassic Park, yeah. which is some fact, some fiction. But as a museum curator, what can you do to get more people interested in science? And why do you think it's important for the non-scientist average person to engage in, in all of this? Well... That's that's actually a really big question. There's so much in that. So for starters, what? Why do I think it's important? Well, I first of all, I think they're just missing out <laughs> if they don't get to know about the the majesty of what's gone before us. They're really that's just so, it's cool. It is, it, and it's not just cool. It's re, it, it's beautiful, and it's such a rich, giant tapestry of life and all of its multifaceted different forms that have been and gone that I think a life would just be poorer for not having known anything about it at all. So there is that, that just, you know, someone's money is being spent on us doing this research and getting these fossils out the ground. So I have also a responsibility to convey the fruits of that labour and that money to people, to disseminate it to the general public, because otherwise why do it? It's not just for our benefit, it's for everyone's benefit. There is that, and also just understanding how planetary systems work and that, you know, we actually should, you know, be a little bit more... This is, it's almost getting trite now, you know, because we, we are facing this huge global issue of we are buggering with the climate. Yeah. And we're doing it at a rate that is so much faster than the, even that you mentioned the PETM. It's probably now the, 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 the rate that the temperature is climbing is faster than in that, that spike. And so, and in the past, you know, some of these climate changes are associated with horrific mass extinctions, like the end of the Permian. Yeah, we don't want to do that to ourselves. Well, there is a book, The Sixth Extinction, <laughs> and we cause it. Yeah. But on that beautiful high note, <laughs> Adam, it has been fantastic. It has been such a joy to meet you. And I wish uh, I had a camera as you took me around the museum yesterday. That was just fantastic. But this is for our ears, our audio listeners only. But uh, Adam, thank you for being on Paleo. Oh, it's Hitters. been a real pleasure. Thank and you. Uh, I'm just going to go over here. Come with me. Yes. We're still recording. Right. Can okay. I point to something? Uh, I was looking at these. Are these scoops with the holes in the back? Are these yes. crocodile? Yeah. That's dermal plates. That's right. That's armor plating, skin armor from, skin a armor. from a crocodile. And that was literally two meters from where we did this interview. And there's a thousand other bones there. Dave Strassman signing off from Alice Springs, Northern Territory, Australia. And as we say, good night. <laughs> How you going? I missed you, Ray, but it still was a good interview anyway, but you, you were sorely missed. Really, it was a fun interview, man. I, so you guys were actually inside the collection? Is that where you were? Yeah, we're in the museum there in Alice Springs, but we're sitting next to 8 million-year-old crocodile scoots and bones everywhere. You've been to collection rooms and museums. There's so much just tags sitting there waiting for someone else to 
figure out what they are. Yeah. Is it a big museum, lots of employees, or is Adam like it? It's a proper museum with staff and awesome collections and really cool displays. It's small, but it is a top-notch museum in the center of Australia. Oh, really? I kind of had that feeling that it was out in the old. Is this technically in the outback then? Well, no, it's in downtown Alice Springs. That's kind of in the yeah, middle Springs of the, you know, is, surrounded by desert. and. Alice Springs is probably 1,000 to 1,500 miles from any near big city. Whoa. Far away. I don't have my mileage correct here, but... Well, if you drive out of there, you got to be able to go 1,000 miles to something or what? Oh, no. there's... There's gas stations along the way? Yes, they're outback gas stations along the way. Yeah, you can drive anywhere pretty much in Australia, most places, and, mm. and have access to petrol. But there are some places like the famous Birdsville track where you're kind of, you got to be, you're on your own. Well, it's so cool to be able to kind of see Australia through your eyes a little bit. But the interview was really great. It's, it's incredible the number of like bones coming out of that site. Yeah. It's very thin, too. You're talking about maybe a foot of all these bones compacted. It isn't like you dig down and, and they're there for 10 feet. It's a very small in depth. Let me ask you this. You're back in the Miocene. I really dug that, uh, so to speak, uh, the Dromornis, the, the big bird, the really big yeah. bird. But speaking of the mammals, uh, were there prehistoric kangaroos at this site? Yes, there are. And if uh, you didn't mention them once, man, what, what about the ruse? I was like, where, what are the worst kangaroos? If you go to the Adam Yates episode page at paleonerds.com, I have a card in the photo gallery of silhouettes of all the animals that were found there. And there's quite a handful of kangaroo, pre kangaroo like uh, animals. Pre kang. Yeah. Hang with the pre kang. Actually, I, I remember that there's a, a carnivorous kangaroo back there somewhere with like spiky somewhere. teeth things i uh, like the idea of killer kangaroos killer roos. i think in his pouch he had um <laughs> gloves he had boxing gloves so he had a blade <laughs> watch out man <laughs> anyway so i want to go i want to go back adam yates sounds like a really cool dude very friendly and man they, he knows his stuff he's not just uh he's oh he's also a, an amazing geologist that's so what i was he gonna say he, geology yeah you went into the geology way deep there early in the episode so it was, it was and fun. how sad that they have this blackout from yeah. the i think jurassic well, they got no dinosaurs no fossils none but i think what's amazing is there's no deposition it's all been eroded away and i never thought of that idea before that you could go to a landscape and go, why are there no fossils here? Because there were, but they've been eroded out away millions of years ago. And I never thought of that until this interview. Well, you know, one of the very first things that Dr. Johnson, who I spent a lot of time with, he's been one of our previous guests. He's my buddy, paleobotanist. And But one of the very first things uh, Dr. Johnson taught me, he said, Troll, you need to understand this. There's two conditions in the world, deposition, and erosion, D&E stuff is either piling up or blown away or being, you know, washed away. So those are the two conditions in the world at all times. So mountains that are yeah. going away and mountains that are being formed. And so if you want to be a fossil someday, you got to go to where you know it's going to be the D world. <laughs> so here in yeah. America, the place you got to be is down in uh, Louisiana. That's a good place for D. You want to be a... Right. Just go lay down, go down to the bayou, lay... Find yourself some good mud, and everything's piling up down there. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. 
Great episode, Dave. Wish I was there, and uh, <laughs> but I was here in rainy Ketchikan doing my thing. Oh, and uh, you have outdone your artistic self again. You have now a new line of fabric, which is fantastic. And where do our listeners go check that out? Actually, just go to my website. There's a button there on my website that says fabric, oh, and it'll take you to a place. And your website is www. com. and there's a button there okay. that'll take you to a place called Spoon Flower, and you can... Fantastic. And look at it there. So, yeah. Well, my hat's off to your amazing work. I want to get some sheets and a pillow of your stuff so I can be even closer to you, Ray. Tablecloths, <laughs> wallpaper, Dave. It's all Tablecloths, really? Oh, yeah. Tablecloths. You can do it. Bedspreads. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to be uh, buying some stuff right after this. All right. Get on there, man. So, as always, from rainy old catch can i'm gonna well it's the sun is out and no it's rainy again anyways <laughs> it can't make up its mind today nor can i but goodbye dave it's from old uh, catch well, a can here in ojai it looks like catch a can we've had the gray may and we're coming up to june gloom and it's great clouds so oh, i feel for you oh <laughs> so sad in california and it's cloudy yeah one week a year <laughs> All right, buddy. I meant over and out. Over and out. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs>